Yes, Lord. Yeah. I'm American journalist, Wolf Blitzer. Are you sure Russia was behind hacking? I mean, maybe. What are you really, really sure? It was China. Uh, I mean, Canada. It was Meryl Streep. Okay, this press conference is over. Thank you all for peeing here. I mean, for pissing here. I mean, for being here. And live from New York, it's Saturday night. Welcome to the Saturday Night Live After Party. This week we'll be discussing Season 42, Episode 11 of Saturday Night Live with host Felicity Jones and musical guest Sturgill Simpson. I'm John Murray and joining me this week is Steve Finn. Steve is the host of Transparency on CHMR 93.5 FM in St. John's, Newfoundland. You can connect with Steve on Facebook at Transparency CHMR. And you can connect with us at snlafterparty.fm. If you're enjoying our podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. These reviews help us to get the word out, and they're greatly appreciated. All right, enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, Felicity Jones! Over the holidays, a friend of the show, Andy Hoagland, who runs the uh, Twitter account SNL and Review, and he's a syndicated columnist who also has an article series called SNL and review that uh, is syndicated on Huffington post and a few other outlets. We had gotten together and, and he was able to coordinate a few interviews with SNL alumni. And I was able to post the hour long talk that we had with Robin Duke, who old school fans of the show would know as an early eighties hire during the Dick Ebersol era. She had been there from 1981 to 1984 She's also one of the few cast members who had the distinction of being a player on both SDTV and SNL. And she was kind of brought into the show right at that pivotal moment when there was a lot of turnover at the end of the 1980 season, when Dick Ebersol came in and kind of cleaned house and tried to retool the show and save it from cancellation. She basically got brought in right at that moment when they were trying to fix the show. So she saw one of the defining moments in SNL history. And we were able to sit down and talk with her and really dig into what that landscape looked like and what it was like to build a career during that era. And it was a lot of fun and we were able to put it up and it's well worth a listen for anyone who really likes the, the minutia, the history, just kind of being able to put yourself back in that era and hear it from a, a firsthand account. So I hope our audience has a chance to give that a listen. Yeah. I'll say it was a really good interview. I wasn't involved, but I did listen and it was really interesting and insightful. So yeah, good on you. Yeah. You did a good job. Uh, over the holidays, Tony Rosado, who was also an alum of SCTV and SNL during the exact same era that Robin Duke was, he passed and, uh, she spoke a lot about him during the interview because they had sort of come up together through second city in Toronto. So they had, um, they had been performing together on stage at second city and they were both brought into SNL at the same time. And he's actually the one that had recommended her for the job or one of the people, Catherine O'Hara had also put her name in the hat. So she spoke very highly of him and presented him as a, a very, uh, sort of warm and, uh, just a, a positive figure in her life. So considering that he passed you know, you, you want to kind of step back and, and remember these people that helped keep the show going and helped define it during that era. It's well worth a listen as well, just to get a sense of sort of what Tony Rosado's path was at the same time and, and kind of what the highlights of his career were. Cause they kind of paralleled Robin Dukes in a lot of ways. We'd actually been in talks with Tony Rosado's representation to do a, a parallel interview to Robin Dukes to kind of get the other half of the story. And uh, even though we'd made some headway with that, we weren't able to get it tacked down before he he passed away. So we're never going to get to hear that story. But fortunately, you know, there's there's some insights that you can glean from the Robin Duke interview that that helped to paint a picture of who Tony was and just sort of what his world was like at that time as well. So anyways, if people are interested in that kind of thing, it's there. And uh, we, we hope that people get a little bit of amusement from uh, from getting a, to take a look back at that era. So with that said, let's uh, keep plugging away here because we got a lot to jump through before we can get into the review. New York Times 
their comedy writer, Jason Zinneman, had a feature on Julio Torres, who is one of the eight new writers that they brought on for season 42. And it offered a little bit of insight on what his path was to SNL and what uh, sketches and pre-tapes he's been involved in. And I wanted to bring that out because a lot of what we've been talking about on the cast up to this point, we've, we've offered high praise to a lot of sketches that some of them we knew were his work, but a lot of them we weren't really sure, but it seemed like it kind of had his voice. That article kind of confirms pretty much everything he'd been working on since he got to SNL. And it really is amazing to see how much of his voice is coming through in season 42. So yeah, it was a great article and it made me realize that a lot of my favorite sketches came from this guy's mind. Mm -hmm. The North Dakota sketch. Yeah. Diego calls his mom. Diego calls his mom, right? And the uh, the balcony, or no? It was a Wells Wells for sensitive boys. Yeah, the Wells for <laughs> sensitive boys. Yeah, that was some really good stuff. Yeah, those are two of the highlights. I think, if I remember correctly, Wells for sensitive boys got our vote for best sketch for that episode. At least one of us picked it. Yeah, I remember when I first watched uh, Diego calls his mom thinking I have never seen anything quite like that on SNL as far as it kind of having a sentimentality and an innocence, but also uh, a little bit of a sense of danger and and eroticism. It was just like, there was, (laughs) there was just all sorts of bizarre comedic elements sort of brewing together in that. And I couldn't quite parse it or figure out how I felt about it. I just knew that it was charming to watch. Like I was grinning at the end of it and I couldn't quite figure out why. And it's really rare that SNL puts something on screen that does that. And so the fact that he's been able to not just do it with that sketch, but bring a lot of surreal and interesting concepts to the screen so far, Melania moments comes to mind. He did the, the sink that was having the existential crisis, just a lot of really unique stuff that we don't see enough of on SNL. So I'm just really super pumped that he's there and excited to see what else we get from, from his unique comedic mind for the rest of the season. I think it's a uh, well worth anyone checking out that article. If they want to get a sense of, of who he is and uh, if they're in the New York area, uh, maybe even seeing some of his stand up or other things that he's, he's doing in the scene. We got a little bit of feedback, so let's bat this around and then we'll jump into the review. So Reddit user Sharvi asks, who are three hosts you'd like to see some point in the remainder of the season? You have any thoughts on that, Steve? Oh, wow. <laughs> Just off the top of your head. Well, I'd like to see the rock again. Yeah. What movies he got coming out soon? That Oh, you know what? He's got the, uh, 12 fast, 12 furious movie coming out. <laughs> 12. <laughs> That's what they're calling. They're calling it the fade of the furious. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Which is pretty good. After they called the second one too fast, too furious. Ever since then, every time one comes out, I just think it obviously should be called, you know, three fast, three furious, four fast, four furious. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, so he's got that. I think he's got something else coming out too, but I can't remember what. Tooth fairy two, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, he's great. He's always welcome. He was on just a couple of years ago though. So I don't know how long it's going to take before he bubbles back up to the top of the stack. There's one guy I always wanted to see host because they're uh, friends of the show. They've been on as musical guests a lot. I'm talking about the Foo Fighters. And whenever they've come on as musical guests, they've always had something to do in the sketches. Mm -hmm. And they've brought a lot of comedic talent for people who aren't in the business. And Dave Grohl, I think, would be a great host Mm. to do kind of like a Bruno Mars, Mick Jagger type of thing handling both host and musical guest duties. That would be fun. Yeah, no, that could be good. Like Dave Grohl is a ham. You see some of the, like when he, remember when he was recording an album once, they did some behind the scenes stuff about his addiction to coffee or something like that, that I remember being really funny at the time. So you, you can tell that he, he doesn't take himself too seriously and he's just kind of like, almost like a child in his enjoyment of being, famous and being able to be around famous people and just kind of yuck it up and have a good time. So yeah, I, I bet he'd be a surprisingly fun host. Yeah. There's a, a bit of a movement to get Donald Glover on the show. Um, not just because of his rap stuff, but because he's the new Lando Calrissian. So even though I think it's a long shot for season 42, I bet we'll be seeing him within a couple of years when the, the Han Solo movie comes out. We'll be seeing the Dong lover. For sure. Yes. Um, other than that, 
I really can't think anyone that I want to see. I, I love it when we get a host that's unexpected and isn't just there because it's part of their press tour. So I like being surprised. I don't necessarily just want to figure out, okay, who's the next Oscar contender and who's got the next big blockbuster coming out because they're not necessarily the ones that are going to be as engaged when they get to the show. Okay. So why don't we get into the review? Sure. We start off with the Trump press conference cold open. Not a lot we need to set up. Obviously this is ripped right out of the headline. So what did you think of this cold open? I thought it was a really, really, really good cold open. And I think this is the best that Alec Baldwin has been doing Trump on the show. He was good from day one doing it, but the nuances that he's come up with for that particular um, manifestation of Donald Trump, you know, the way he, he holds faces between lines and stuff, it really works to sell the absurdity coming out of his mouth as Donald Trump. Okay. So it's great. And I knew this was going to be a particularly long cold open. This is something that I always uh, take notice of when it's a press conference type of sketch for the cold open. You can tell generally how long it's going to be by how many cast members are sitting in the audience. How many reporters are they going to be going to over the next 15 minutes? (laughs) Yeah. And I saw, you know, I saw Pete, I saw Sashir, 80, uh, Bobby was there. It was, I was, uh, yeah, I was pretty (laughs) confident it was going to be at least a 15 minute cold open. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I thought it was a really great cold open. Maybe not for the same reasons. I think Alec Baldwin's Donald Trump was on point. It was as good as, as ever, but I just thought the material was a lot of fun when Donald Trump ends up dropping all of those euphemisms for golden shower into his, (laughs) his statement during the press conference. And it just builds and builds and builds. And they just keep hitting you with one after another. That was the most fun I've had in a cold open probably this season. Oh yeah. For my money, this was the best Trump we've seen on the show. And maybe it's just because it wasn't the Hillary Trump back and forth stuff where they're trying to make something funny that in real life is really almost like grudge match level, (laughs) uh, sort of aggressive. In this case, it really is just the utter absurdity that follows Trump around wherever he goes. And, and it was great. It was absolutely great. You know, I've, I've heard it mentioned before that whenever Alec Baldwin is doing Trump on Saturday night live. Kate is always there in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Usually it's either Hillary or Kellyanne Conway. Yeah. This time she was a, a reporter in the crowd, but I did notice that they cut to her and had her do her question right after Kellyanne Conway was mentioned. So mm-hmm. I feel like that was, that was intentional to make that connection, but maybe I'm reading too far into it. Maybe, but, never put it past a writer to enjoy finding a nice rhythm for something, right? Like if you can add a little bit of flavor into something, uh, why would they shy away from that? So the idea of referencing Kellyanne and then putting Kate on screen next, like that just, that just seems like the kind of flow or artistry that a writer, uh, it would be very easy for them to stumble on it. And it does uh, remind you that Kate McKinnon is, very much wrapped up in our enjoyment of Donald Trump. She's kind of the other half of the equation. Yeah. And I think that's what was on their mind when they decided to make that wink. So I do think I'm leading towards the possibility that was intentional and not just a coincidence. I think that's what it was. It was a wink. It was just a subtle little thing for the amusement of a writer because they felt that it was important that one idea flow into the other. And that's what writers do. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So let's talk about, Felicity Jones needing help with her SNL hosting mission. We get Tina Fey in a holographic cameo and Keenan Thompson as Saw Gerrera from Rogue One. What did you make of this monologue? Do you think this held together? Yes. And I think they made sure that it would hold together without relying too much on Felicity. <laughs> and I'm saying this because... It, it is of my opinion that Felicity was not really cut out to make an effective monologue work. Yeah. And you could tell by, you know, I've never seen a host be more stilted and, and so <laughs> obviously reading cue cards. I mean, it sounded more like she was doing a voiceover for a, 
you know, an airline safety mm-hmm. video or something. There was that delivery that was, it was basically just getting through text. Yep. And, you know, I have a feeling that they've tried some different concepts <laughs> of monologues and got a sense that, okay, Felicity's going to need some help here. And basically literally made that the premise of the, of the monologue. Yeah. Uh, I thought the exact same thing. My, my theory was the writers came to her with the first draft and did a, a walkthrough with her. And immediately afterwards, like they, they smile at her and say, Oh, that's great. And then immediately afterwards walk up to Lauren and say, you need to call Tina Fey right now. <laughs> <You know? That's, laughs> yeah. That was my assumption. Now, the other part of that though, is because the whole premise of the monologue is she needs help. She needed kind of a bailout or a pep talk. I wonder if she was intentionally making the delivery of the jokes stilted for the sake of investing in that premise. That's the thing that I can't quite figure out is, was that part of the goof or is she really just that bad at delivering a joke? <laughs> well, we're nice guys. So we, we don't want to believe that or assume it. So yeah, it's only natural. We try to give her the benefit of the doubt, but I'm, I'm finding it difficult to do that. Yeah. See, I am too. And because the whole monologue came off so handholdy, right? Like let's get someone flanking her as soon as possible to kind of help keep this, you know, this on the tracks because it, it transitioned into that so quickly. I have to believe that it really just did come down to this, not being the right type of performance for, for Felicity Jones. I just, I think she was out of her depth on it. Yeah. Yeah. But that said, as, as a clever and fun way to salvage what could have potentially been a really rocky start to the show, uh, I think they did great. I think Tina Fey, what, when she appeared, her jokes all fired, right? Like one after another, she had nice little, little one-offs and little kind of like side digressions that were all really fun. And, uh, so the writing there was sharp and I, I, she probably had, you know, a hand in punching that up a bit. And the costume for Keenan was, was on fleek. So there was, there was a lot of fun there. It just, uh, it just seemed like they had to get it out of Felicity's hands as soon as possible to, to make sure that it played. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Now, what do you, what do you think of this, uh, this Leslie Jones bit as part of the, the monologue and <laughs> Tina basically admitting that, you know, Leslie might be a little bit one note and the writers might lean on her a little bit to use her persona to get laughs. Well, I think the real joke there wasn't trying to goof on, on Leslie Jones be one note. I think the joke was they literally didn't have a good ending for the monologue. So they're going to be a little tongue in cheek and set it up earlier in the monologue that if Leslie Jones appears, it means we don't have a way of getting out of this sketch. And then Leslie Jones appears, says all the, the buzzwords that you're expecting. You know, I'm a, well, I'm a little angry. I'm a little horny or whatever it was that, <laughs> that Tina Fey said the cue would be to know that this is the writers trying to get out of the sketch. When that happens, I think that just was them saying, oh, isn't it funny? Isn't it, isn't this good, like meta comedy for us to kind of call attention to it and then do it and literally make that be the end of the sketch. So I, I think it was just, you know, limited options, limited time. They're, they're really just trying to pull a bunch of pieces together and get something that plays. And that was, that was as good as they had for an ending. Fits with the general theme of it all. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So surprisingly enough, I enjoyed the monologue, but I think the, the most enjoyment I got out of it was trying to figure out just from a production standpoint, how they landed on that, like why it went the way it did. And I think we can't assume too much, but I, I definitely think that this was just, they knew that Felicity wasn't going to be able to carry it. And so they had to, had to get creative and they did. Yeah. And they, they figured out how to get through it. And I'm, and I'm actually really impressed <laughs> that, <laughs> that it, it played as well as it did for, for what it could have been. So let's uh, push forward here. Our first sketch of the night beard hunk. It's just basically the bachelor and they're goofing on the most cringy moments of one of those bachelor bachelorette type shows. Is this something that we needed to see again? And, and why now? Like, why, why did they resurrect this? Well, it seems to be something they go to for hosts that aren't mm-hmm. expected to carry the show as well as more uh, capable hosts could. Yeah. I think the last time we saw it was with Ronda Rousey, who of course being a athlete instead of a actor or performer, you know, this is something that they can just you know, throw in there and it's not too much of a challenge to involve the host. Right. 
because the host isn't on screen the entire time. You know, pretty much anyone can do at least like a bubbly girl character. So it's it's low risk, basically. You're right. And I think that's going to be the running theme of the night is it seemed like they kept Felicity Jones squarely in uh, minor roles and roles that couldn't really derail a sketch. And this is, like you said, a really good example of that. Even if she fell flat, she's going to be shuffled off within 10 seconds. And then one of the established players is going to come back and, and land a joke. So, you know, there's no, no harm in it. Yeah. And even with those training wheels on, you know, she was struggling with an American accent. Mm-hmm. It, it was uh, falling in and out. She was adorable, fun to look at, but you're right. Even the accent wasn't holding up. So yeah, <laughs> not the the greatest uh, first sketch of the night to kind of give you confidence in the show's legs. Fun to look at. Well, you're as sexist as Steve Martin. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, am I, am I saying anything here? That's that controversial. She's a, she's a very, no, no, of course I'm joking. I was, uh, (laughs) it just reminded me of the, the trouble that Steve Martin got in for tweeting about Carrie Fisher. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's one of those non-controversies that I, as soon as it comes my way, I, I just revolt against. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So Steve, Steve Martin has the audacity to, to point (laughs) out that. Carrie Fisher was very physically beautiful in her youth and, and somehow, you know, he's out of step with our, our modern progressive values, but oh goodness, don't please, <laughs> please do not drag me down into a, a rant on this because you, you know, you know how uh, touchy I am about those kind of things. That's why I said it. Cause I know how easy it is. Well, thank you for derailing our little podcast here. Let's okay. Let's see what else we got to uh, go over here. Okay. So, First pre-tape of the night, Chandra and Malik. This is basically what you get when two people are trying to are trying to maintain their street cred and front, but <laughs> neither one of them have any real game. You know, Keenan pulls up in his, his beat up, you know, old boat that he can't get started in the the critical moments, and Leslie Jones, you know, just can't deal with the stress of it all. So there's, there's a fun little goof there. Do you feel like that was a strong enough premise to carry this pre-tape? Well, I have my problems with it. You know, it's a strong enough premise to explore. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, if you are trying to act tough and you're trying to, you know, intimidate someone and then you can't even leave because your car won't start, (laughs) that just ruins the entire Yeah. It kind of steals your thunder there a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's, it's, it's a funny thing to explore. And it was, it was, I'm not sure about how I feel about where they took it because it ended up being like something that brought them together because they were helping each other out. You kind of flip the roles around because Leslie's character, I guess Chandra was, was more in control, knew more about vehicles. Hmm. So as, as it went on, there was like a respect found between them, but where they were going in that direction, it, it felt weird the way they ended it with the, the car exploding. Right. I guess this is another Leslie Jones being angry and horny type of moment where they didn't <laughs> know how to end it. So they were just like, let's uh, blow up the car. That would be funny. Yeah. I think that's exactly what it was. I agree with you entirely. This was a fun premise, but it was flawed in that they didn't quite know where they wanted to take it. And then they muddied the waters by not really following through on the idea of these guys always trying to maintain their cred while at the same time, sort of, um, uh, being a little bit beholden to each other for support. If they had have just figured out how to maintain that a little better and mine it a little better, then maybe I would have thought this would be a success, but as it stood, I felt like it, it just was too weak. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Moving on theater donor. This is a very ambitious sketch. The premise is the benefactor of a new play has been brought in to preview the play. And unfortunately at 106 years of age, he's a little high maintenance. What, what's your take on this? It would have been really easy for this to come out a jumbled mess visually. Mm-hmm. They, they figured it out really well. I think how to make it work, how to make it look balanced yep. with the perspective that they were forced to work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Aside from that, I mean, it wasn't a laugh out loud, funny sketch to me. I was more so just being impressed by, you know, how everyone was, you know, handling their lines because there's people talking over other people. There's shifts in focus to the stage play. 
from the stage play to to the old guy in the wheelchair to the audience member that mm-hmm. Keenan was playing. So everybody had to be on their game in terms of line delivery yep. and feeling the energy and and they got through the sketch really well. Yep, th- those are all great points from a from a production standpoint. You're right, it was ambitious. It was well thought out and staged well. And the acting and commitment that everyone had was fantastic. I have a a question about Felicity Jones contribution, but other than that, I thought, uh, especially like Beck and Kate as the actors that have to try and hold back their frustration with all of the ruckus and pursue their lines and, and keep pushing the, the play forward. I thought that there was just some really good acting and some subtlety too, like just sort of like biting their lips at moments and just kind of wincing a little bit and, and waiting for their chance to keep moving forward. And there was a lot going on that was fun to watch it play out. My big problem with the sketch though, is that it couldn't help, but feel very awkward you know, watching this old guy kind of reel and be frustrated and have his dignity kind of like pulled away from himself. It's hard to keep the joke going when (laughs) it's actually a little kind of disturbing or sad, you know, what's playing out. And I think that maybe that's what pulled me out of it more than anything, or just maybe just how complicated it was in that there was so many parallel things kind of playing out on screen that it, it was kind of hard to invest in it. There was something that I just couldn't connect with. So it didn't, it didn't work for me, but I respect the try. I really, really respect the try. Yeah. Maybe it hits a little too close to home for people to laugh at it the way uh, it was intended to be. Yeah. And I think that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. My only other thought was for whatever reason, Felicity Jones seemed to like take on sort of like a, a hunchback quality in her nursing, like almost, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to describe it, but it just seemed like there were, there was something about her choices there that I felt didn't, didn't help the sketch either, but I, I don't want to get too critical on Felicity Jones. We're going to have a lot more to say about her. I'm sure throughout the night. Yeah. That was a side effect of being hyper aware, mm. thinking too much about how should I place my hands and how should I bend over to pick this up? And, and when you overthink it, you look really awkward. And I do this a lot because I get self-conscious myself. And then I'm like, uh, which, which arm goes in front of sure. which leg when I walk? It's, it's funny what you forget about yep. when you're, when you're anxious. Yeah, I think you're right. That's probably what it was because the majority of the sketch, she is hunched over him, like trying to care for someone who's on a bed. So she's already a little bit like her back is already bent. I think she just forgot to stand up straight when she was chasing the bed at the end. So she's still hunched when she's traveling across the scene, trying to catch up with him. And that that's when she kind of looked like the hunchback. Cause you're right. She just forgot. Like, it's okay for me to not be in hunch pose now. Yeah. She's not in the moment. She's not loose as a performer. She's <laughs> you're right. She was in her head. That's exactly what it was. She's a fantastic movie actress. I really enjoyed her in Rogue One. You can't uh, call into question whether she's got talent, but live sketch comedy is definitely not not where she needs to be. So let's get on to our second pre-tape. We've got The Princess and the Curse, which I think is a pretty straightforward spoof of a live action Disney fairy tale, which we're getting a few of lately. The goof, of course, is that sometimes love doesn't conquer all. <laughs> Do you think this worked? Did we have fun with this one? I think it did work. It was it was pretty funny. What really makes this sketch funny to me, funnier than it should be, was the lack of severity to her transformation, I guess <laughs> you could say. Yeah. Like, she doesn't even gain... 30 pounds or 50 pounds. It's just 15 pounds. (laughs) Yeah. It's trivial. It's very trivial. In my head, I was imagining Felicity Jones with 15 pounds more weight on her and she would still be gorgeous. Sure. And it's so funny that he's that shallow of a person (laughs) that he can't even handle 15 pounds. Yeah. (laughs) Overnight. It's like not even all the time, (laughs) but yeah, there was some really good, uh, lives in there is like oh your friends tell you that you know <laughs> it was it was good observational humor this is this is the stuff that snl always uh nails yep it was really good it took a few minutes to get to that joke if i was gonna critique it i would say maybe we didn't need as much of the upfront theatrical stuff to get us to this point we all know prince charming meeting the maiden in the glen 
scene, right? Like you, you already know what you're looking at. You don't need a whole lot of exposition to get you there. So yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that's a small critique. This was fun and I enjoyed it. And I thought that the observation was really great that you're taking Prince Charming, who's declaring his love and expounding on the depth of his love and how nothing could ever come between him. But then yes, the most trivial and inconsequential thing that could never be a problem between two people who are genuinely in love that totally takes him out of it. Yeah. And then at the end we find out she's just as shallow. <laughs> so I think you're right though. And, and it falls victim to a little bit too much world building Yeah, because we could have used the present day portion after the flashback setup. Uh, if, if the sketch started from there, we'd get all the information we needed. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, maybe we could have done a little bit more with that concept in result. Yeah. Okay. Moving right along. Susan B. Anthony, uh, a bunch of millennials go to Susan B. Anthony's house. They meet <laughs> Susan B. Anthony and quickly learn that the suffering that they face in 2017 is maybe not in the same league as the suffering that Susan B. Anthony fought for. So there is definitely a, a social message uh, behind this sketch. Do you feel like it was well-realized and do you think it was a message that, that we needed to hear in 2017? It's definitely a message that needs to be heard in this day <laughs> and age. This is the era of time where actual passion, you know, real caring for an issue is replaced by the artificial sense that you're contributing by putting a hashtag on your tweet (laughs) about an issue. So you have these characters show up and pretty much get their fill of, of gratification that, Mm -hmm. you know, we've done our part. We've, we've uh, given our attention to Susan B. Anthony and and what she stands for. Now let's get back to our, (laughs) our McDonald's and our, our cabs to the, to the train or whatever. Right. You see that the way that they get annoyed by Susan B. Anthony just hanging around. It's like, (laughs) this is really what it's like. We want to be able to blow the dust off an issue and handle it, but then put it away in a drawer when we're done. Right. And we don't want to think about it anymore. But that's not how it works, is it? Yeah. No, and that's, you, you pegged it. That's exactly right. You know, they go there because they feel like they want perspective and they want to expand their horizons and, and connect, you know, with those that have come before they have that notion, but it has to be performed effortlessly, right? The second that it requires anything from them as far as patience or interrupting their plans or even splitting a cab, it all comes crashing down. Yeah. Uh, the sketch I think framed it perfectly when they, when they first meet Susan B. Anthony and they're, they're singing her praises and they're, they're having fun with the fact that they have a a moment to talk to Susan B. Anthony. One of the girls says, you know, it's a hard time for women right now Yeah, because that's their perspective. You immediately understand uh, just how worlds apart (laughs) the, the characters are. And then obviously it plays it up. It shows that, yeah, within a matter of minutes, these girls are so deeply invested in their phones and where they're going for dinner and you know, who's picking them up for the train station or whatever that any notion of, of social awareness or, or obligation to those that have come before has, has completely been brushed aside. So this was very smart. I feel like I caught the message and that I appreciated it. And I think that's a, that's a win for a sketch. If it can do that, I hope everyone walked away from it saying, yeah, we're a little pampered and a little self-absorbed and we have a tendency to, like to believe that we want to make a difference right up until the point where it takes any real effort. Yeah. Yeah. And to end the sketch the way they did, it also drives the point home that we're so much quicker to get offended than to support. (laughs) Sure. So as soon as something contradicts our beliefs, we lash out. Right. That's what gets our attention. That's really what we focus on is what we're outraged about (laughs) instead of appreciating what has been done for you. Yeah. There was a lot to latch onto that felt very true about this sketch. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought it was a lot of fun. What makes me sad is that I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of people that watch this sketch and maybe don't connect with any of that. They just see it in terms of, oh, this old timey character is, is such an annoyance to these girls. <laughs> you know, like there, there are going to be people that maybe that's the extent of what they pick out of it. And, you know, so be it. I mean, <laughs> kind of proves the sketch's point. And that's, that is the tragedy of it is, is that there's a lot of truth on display in, in this sketch. <laughs> right. Let's 
jump into our musical performances. Sturgill Simpson performs Keep It Between the Lines and Call to Arms. What'd you think? Man, this guy's great, eh? Yeah, this was a treat. This was a real treat. Real treat. Never heard of him, I'll be honest. Mm -hmm. No, neither did I. I didn't even know what genre he was in. I don't think I could even tell you now what genre he's in. Mm. Country, rockabilly, hard rock. I don't know. I'd call it sort of like a like a uh, a blues rock, sort of southern rock, kind of like a a roots blues rock. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, it felt very classic. Yeah, the uh, instrumentation was great. Oh yeah, and he he had that <laughs> horn section, three saxophones. I counted. Yeah, I'm I'm sure he just basically went to his label and said, okay. How many musicians will you guys pay for? <laughs> I want them all. <laughs> you know, we're going big. <laughs> yeah. And it paid off. I mean, it sounded yeah. so rich and it's the reason why I prefer the last waltz versions of all the band's songs mm -hmm. as opposed to their studio versions mm -hmm. because of that extra panache that the, the horns and the, and the uh, added orchestration, what that can do for a performance. Absolutely. And seeing this, like, I haven't seen that many people on that stage in a long time that weren't dancers. And every one of them got a moment. That was the best part. Everyone got a moment to shine and everybody was adding to the richness of the performance. Yeah. It's pretty obvious why these particular musicians were chosen to be on that stage with Sturgill. Sure. Here's the real question. We were both really high on Chance the Rapper on the Christmas episode. And you went as far as to say, you said, this is flat out the best musical performance of the year, which I think I would agree with up to that point. I think it was. So my question to you is, is it still chance the rapper? Or do you think, uh, Sturgill Simpson may have, uh, out bombasted him? Well, that's all depending on what category you focus on. You know, there's so many variables you can judge music and performances on cop out. Which one did you like better? Ah, jeez. <laughs> I'm going to say I still like Chance the Rapper overall better. Okay. No, that's fair. I got to say that at this point, I'm putting Sturgill Simpson on top. I just think, I think there was just so much going on that was fun and energetic that I just, I was really, really giddy watching him. His organist at one point, he just, he jumps on the organ and just starts pounding it with his feet just for the spectacle, just for the fun of it. Because at this particular point in the song, it was just a wall of sound crescendo. You know, everybody's just going flat out on their instruments. The drummer at one point, he uh, blew a crash. You know, he was just wailing on his kit so much that a crash went flying. This was a lot of fun. I, I just, I thought it was great. I thought it was absolutely great. Yeah. I, I'm there with you <laughs> in many ways. I prefer this performance over that chance. The rapper, I'm just thinking in terms of originality. Sure. Because I've heard this sound before. Yeah. Maybe not quite at this tempo or in that heaviness. So there's elements that were refreshing. Yeah. There was a lot of black crows in this, if you ask oh, me. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's what I was hearing, especially with the first song. So the reason I, I would pick Chance the rap, Rapper out of the two of them is because there was more originality to what Chance was doing. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of stuff there that I had not seen or heard before. And I'll say a lot of good things about Sturgill. But I do have to say that he's not reinventing anything. Sure. Yep. No, that's all perfectly valid. From artistic merit standpoint, Chance the Rapper was the superior, <laughs> the superior offering. But which of the two performers would I rather get drunk at in a concert? <laughs> I'll go see Sturgill Simpson. <laughs> yeah, I think I would say the same. <laughs> I don't think you can really say anything bad about either of them. You're right. Two very different performances, but both very enjoyable in their own way. And uh, this to me probably was the highlight of the show. Let's keep going. Weekend update. We start with, you know, our typical politically oriented stuff. They're jumping all over the alleged PP <laughs> tape controversy. And uh, Che was particularly loose. I found. Did you notice that he seemed to be maybe a little bit kind of turned on, like just really kind of in the moment and, and really rolling with weekend update this week? Yeah. It felt more like his vibe when he's doing stand up. Yeah. So there was more of that version of Che coming out and yeah, it was a natural flow for sure. in in the way that he was delivering, mm -hmm. he was on fleek for sure. He was <laughs> on fire. I guess you could say. 
he just seemed to be having fun with it. And, uh, I, I think I enjoyed weekend update more because he seemed to be a little bit looser and that was helping me to have more fun with the material. Maybe, uh, Pete shared some of his, uh, his medication with him. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Could be. It seemed like he was able to to keep his focus. His eyes didn't seem too dilated. So I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to presume anything, but yeah, it may be, you know what? Sometimes all you need is a few weeks off. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. He's probably just relaxed. After their opening salvo, their first feature is Pete Davidson, which it's good to see Pete back, you know, uh, before the holidays, uh, he took a few episodes off and people started to speculate, you know, is there a problem there? Cause he also shut down his Twitter and, it just seems like maybe the post-election fallout that was so depressing for so many people may have just caught up with him, but he's back. He's in good form and he's, I think this is a new bit that he's trying out on the show. The first impressions feature. Have we seen this before from Pete Davidson or is this a new kind of approach for him? Yeah, no, it's, it's new as of, as of this episode, I'm pretty sure. I've never seen any graphics yes. going alongside what he's saying. So that's, that's a new thing he's done. Cool. So do we like Pete Davidson in this kind of David Spade style? Let's throw up a, a media personality on the graphic and then I'll just mock them for a couple minutes kind of a format. This is something that's going to get tired really fast. And I think it did by the end of it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a lot to know about what's going on with this cabinet and what they stand for and and how they're going to negatively or positively affect the outcome of the country. Right. So just to, to focus on, oh, this guy looks like Michael Fassbender with no hair. And it's the lowest hanging fruit you could get from <laughs> sure. the subject matter. Uh, yeah. I don't think anyone's going to walk away saying that was really smart and insightful. And I'm, I'm more informed. <laughs> yeah. For my money, it was pretty forgettable, amusing in the moment, but not groundbreaking in any way. Sure. Okay. Are we happy about Beck Bennett's music career? Not as happy as he is, obviously. (laughs) Yeah, or confident in it. (laughs) My only note on this, oblivious confidence. Like, he has this charming thing where he's able to make it seem like he's 100% committed to the idea that what he's doing is great and he's loved and it's all just amazing and wonderful. Like, there's no hint that he has any sense that maybe there's a problem (laughs) with, with the direction he's going. That is a very, very funny persona that he can jump into. Do you feel like this was good material for that, that Beck as Beck character? Yeah. I should first mention uh, this is the first time Beck Bennett's ever done a weekend update panel. Is it really? Yeah. This is the first time he's ever shown up on, on camera on weekend updates. Weird. Very interesting. So I've been flirting with the idea all season that he's officially the new leading man of the show. I think we're there. I don't think there's any question after tonight's episode. This episode is proof for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But when it comes right down to it, did we enjoy this? Was this fun for you? I really thought there was some uh, astute observations. For some reason, people tend to have a blind spot when it comes to how talented they are with music in particular. Right. Like music out of everything else that you could be delusional about how good you are at. This one seems to be the one that's more common. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it lost some steam, but it was more or less uh, an acceptable weekend update bit. Okay. So I'll give it that. I really liked the character and the, again, the oblivious, blindly optimistic belief that they are a pop star. I, I really thought that was funny out of the gate. And like you, I thought that some of the observations were good, especially the notion that when one of these, these manufactured pop stars is in an interview and they're being asked about like their musical influences or their musical background or whatever, they, they just talk about how they like music. <laughs> like there's just, there's nothing else that they can draw on other than I listen to music, right? Cause they really have no business performing music. They, they aren't a talent. They don't even necessarily play an instrument, but they have to speak to why they deserve to be a pop star. And he was able to riff on that a little bit. And I thought that was pretty funny. I felt like, once those jokes were out there that the rest of it serviced that idea, but didn't take it any further. And so it just kind of got a little boring and played out for me too quickly. So I think fun idea, but maybe overstate its welcome a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You hit the nail right on the head about these, these manufactured pop stars trying to sound like they belong in the business. <laughs> right. It reminds me of when Avril Lavigne was chosen to read the nominations for <laughs> David Bowie. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, That's exactly yes. what I'm talking about. Yeah. 
I think everyone knows the type of performer that, that Beck was goofing on. And that was great. That was a great observation. Just, it only took about a minute to get us there. And then the rest of it didn't do anything for me. Money, 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 money. <laughs> okay. So Fandango, all access, hot robot three journey to boob mountain thoughts. Oh, thoughts. Oh, geez. I don't know. It's, I think it's a natural thing. You know, the premise of this sketch being that they're being too uh, deep <laughs> and being too socially conscious and putting too much meaning in this very obviously superficial piece of art. Right. Piece of art. You're going to commit to that phrase. <laughs> well, it's only technically a piece of art. They believe they're artists for producing this piece of whatever it is. <laughs> it's a piece of something. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, it's, it's funny to watch that juxtaposition. You know, it's obviously uh, a caricature. It's an exaggeration of, of what you sometimes see in, uh, in these promotional tours mm -hmm. for films, because, you know, that is part of the deal as an actor is, you know, maybe you, uh, star the, in X-Men apocalypse and you did it for the check <laughs> and you know, it's a, it's a blockbuster bubblegum pop movie that you're not really supposed to think, just enjoy the ride. Right. And then you know, you got to go on tour and do all these press <laughs> conferences and people are asking you like, what is the general meaning behind this? And you got to come up with stuff because you're being asked on the spot and you know, you just did it for the check or whatever. And <laughs> sure. now you got to justify it. And it just sounds like a bunch of BS, like, like this sketch. Yeah. That does happen all too often when people do their press junkets and have to come up with seemingly like artsy fartsy answers. And it's all just very insipid. Yeah. I don't know if, if that's exactly what it was going for though. I connected with it, but maybe for a different reason. I had the unfortunate experience of watching the golden globes this year. Did you watch them? I did not. see. This is exactly why we're going to have different takes on this. If you watch the golden globes, it was the most indulgent, just ridiculous demonstration of how self-important so many people in Hollywood believe they are because every non-Republican in the U S especially in Hollywood, uh, feels like the sky is falling and it's the end of the world. They were all taking their acceptance speeches and, and opportunities for a little bit of time in front of the camera to denounce Trump and all of the problems that they see in the world. Right. And on top of that, we've also got the situation the last week where all of a sudden, because Obama's leaving and his replacement is <laughs> not acceptable to so many people, everyone's lionizing Obama and Biden, and now they're the greatest thing in the world. So we've, we've just got this really weird situation right now where people are just really worked up and emotional and feel like there's all these really like super duper important issues that they have to speak out against. And I think that that might be a little bit of what they were mining in this because whereas you were saying like someone who does like the next Marvel movie and knows that they're just doing it for the check. And then they go on a press junket tour and they have to come up with answers to the stupid questions that they're being asked a hundred times a day. That person doesn't genuinely believe that it's art that they're doing, but these characters do believe it's art. Yeah. They were sincere. Exactly. They believe that what they're doing is super important and they're so up their own butts with, with how great their creativity and their expression is that they don't realize what a joke they are. And then in the midst of this, you, you get the stuff where the one guy starts crying because he like pictured Obama saying a certain line from the movie or whatever, <laughs> because they kept talking about all the social issues and how it's such an important time for artists, you know, now more than ever artists have to, um, whatever, you know, like they, they were talking in these same terms that I, I heard at the golden globes where everyone felt like I'm an actor, I have a platform. So it's my responsibility to be the voice of reason and decry you know, Trump and all of the craziness going on in the States. So I think that they were tapping into that. No. Well, yeah, and that's a problem. Like, Hey, Meryl Streep, what do you think <laughs> of what's going on with Donald Trump? That is not the first person I'm going to go to and ask their opinion of. Yeah. So there was a lot going on in this sketch. I actually really liked it because they, you know, intentionally make the movie so, so ridiculous. There's no, there's no refuting the premise here that these guys are completely 180 degrees oblivious and self-important about their work. And that to me was very funny, especially right now when we're getting it from all sides. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So we have one more sketch. Our 10 to one is called corporate retreat. We have three soft spoken women at a 
island retreat, like some sort of business conference retreat. And they have an opportunity to tell some unsavory jokes. <laughs> That's the setup. What did you take away from this 10 to one? It was just, I was scratching my head. Like <laughs> where did this idea even sprout from? <laughs> it's one of those sketches where it certainly deserves to be a 10 to one sketch. Sure. I just have no, like usually I could f- see like the, the flow, the train of thought yeah. that gets you from point A to point B. But this is just a a jumble of weird ideas that made an even weirder sketch as a whole. And I, I just, <laughs> I'm not usually speechless about sketches when we do this podcast, but this one, I got to say, I'm, I'm freaking speechless. Okay. I don't think it's a thinker. You just think that they're going to be prim and proper. And in their most prim and proper delivery, they say these, these most vulgar of, of jokes that is funny. Like as just a visual of someone that you would never think these words could fall out of their mouth. These three women, they apparently they've heard and told these jokes many times. They're very comfortable with this material and they think it's hilarious and it's great. I thought that that was a lot of fun. I, I was laughing. I was really kind of like perked up thinking, okay, this is, this is the kind of mindless stupidity that I can get behind. Yeah. The rest of the sketch, the structure around it, where Kate McKinnon comes in as kind of this assertive businesswoman at one point. And, you know, there was a lot that I just didn't, feel needed to be there. But that one little core idea of these, uh, shy reserved women telling the most vulgar jokes and throwing off the host, you know, they, they don't even know how to respond to that kind of humor. I really like that. I like that. It's awkward. It's, it's that kind of like cringe humor. Yeah. And I wasn't saying that I was at a loss for drawing meaning. Cause I knew there wasn't much meaning <laughs> behind this. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing I wanted to say is I, Particularly enjoyed how they felt the need to explain their jokes. <laughs> yes. Also in that innocent yeah. delivery that you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, that, that made it even funnier to me. Yeah. It was, that was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's our run through moment of the night. What took it for you? I talked about the problems I had with the Chandra and Malik mm-hmm. sketch. And that was more on the direction it took. Right. Because it started strong and it was a funny concept. So while I did have my problems with the sketch, I think one of the best moments was Keenan or Malik, you know, kind of losing face by <laughs> not being able to get his car start. So that first full plumage kind of beating your chest intimidation <laughs> yeah. uh, leading into that, that was a really good moment for the show. So I'll give my moment to that Okay. That that failed car start. Yeah, Keenan was good in the moment because you can see his eyes start to bulge like he realizes the whole facade is melting away as his car is chugging there. Yeah, that was fun. That was a fun moment. Yeah, totally. My moment of the night, I'm giving it to Sturgill Simpson. Uh, it's been a long time since I've, I think, like stood up while watching a musical performance and just like was 100% glued to the set. Just how into it everyone was. It really just kind of captured me. It was really energetic. It was really fun. And it really just made me perk up. And, and I think that that, that was uh, that was definitely a high point for me. Totes McGroats, broats. Okay. Best overall sketch. I'm giving it to the cold open. Okay. Yeah. This is the only sketch that I thought was actually a really good sketch. Mm-hmm. I'm not really hot on this episode. If it hasn't been clear throughout this <laughs> cast. But it started off really strong. And, you know, I said it when we were talking about it, the, the cold open was one of the best ones that they've done in a while. Yeah. So it, it glaringly is the best of all the sketches I find. Yep. I think it's a cut above everything by far. I can definitely respect that. Uh, best incarnation of Trump we've seen from Alec Baldwin so far. And the material was definitely like the most fun and just kind of like goofy everyone loves a pee joke. You know, there's, <laughs> there's no way to mess up this material and, and they took it and they ran with it and it was great. It was absolutely great. I'm not going to give it to that. Um, just because I felt like that was too easy. We had two sketches tonight that both had a strong point of view and a strong premise and were able to carry those ideas through. They were the Susan B. Anthony one and the, um, the Fandango one. I think those were the only two sketches of the night that I think there's really any meat that we could hang something on. So I want to give it to one of them. I think for my money, I'm giving it to Susan B. Anthony. Sure. Not because it it was rolling on the floor laughing funny, but just because it was smart. And as a sketch, 
not just as wall-to-wall laughs, but just as a sketch, as a peeking in on a concept and trying to present uh, a scenario and cast a light on the human condition and people's perspective. I think that it painted a very true picture of millennials and just how quickly they are to latch onto a seeming social cause because it makes them feel good almost as entertainment, but then how quickly it overstays its welcome when it starts to require effort. I thought there was a, a real idea there. Yeah. And it's one of those sketches that enforce the notion that Saturday night live acts in a way as a time capsule for the state of civilization at the time. Right. You know, you could learn a lot about what it was like in the seventies and in the eighties, just by seeing what the reactionary voice that SNL pipes up with has to say. You're absolutely right. It's a shame that you didn't see the, uh, the vintage episode, Carrie Fisher's episode, because that episode opens with them doing like a beach blanket, Bonanza, Frankie and Annette kind of spoof. And the goof is like the, the actual like underlying message that the sketch was playing up was how different the sensibilities and values are of teenagers in the seventies compared to teenagers in the early sixties when those Frankie and Annette Gidget type of movies and TV shows were coming out. And so it did a really good job of, of them kind of like skewering the values of kids that don't go all the way and don't do drugs and don't do this and don't do that. And so it was very much a, a boomer's perspective. (laughs) that it's very interesting to see that because so much time has passed that it sticks out like a sore thumb and you almost cringe a little bit. But at the time, this would have been hilarious because people would have tuned in and said, no, this is exactly what youth is like today and how much things have changed in 20 years. And they would have seen that. And we're kind of in a way pointing out that the show is still able to do that when it wants to. And so that's kind of why I think the sketch has some value. Oh, it has a lot of value for sure. Okay. MVP. Beck Bennett. Yeah, there's no controversy here. It was his show. It was his show start to finish. It was the Beck Bennett show. Yep. Starring Beck Bennett. Yep. He was Prince Charming. He was a pop star. He was Beardo the Magnificent. He was everything <laughs> in this show. Um, yeah. If the show has a leading man, it's him. And actually, he's really he's really doing the job. Like he He's able to move from Putin to suave to oblivious. This is Beck's show right now. Like, I mean, you know, Keenan is there. Uh, Vanessa's there. Cecily's there. Kate's there. Like, there's a lot of strong players in the cast, but he is definitely on the rise and really carving out a lot to do on the show right now. Oh, yeah. So on a scale of classic, great, typical, weak, or train wreck, how would you rate this episode? Yeah, this is a week, a week episode. Yeah. And it was the first time I considered going for train wreck since we started this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I've given a couple of week ratings before, but it's never crossed my mind until this episode that it may just deserve <laughs> a train wreck. Yep. And if you focus in on certain parts of the show, there were some cars on that train that were wrecked for sure. <laughs> there was maybe the caboose was broken and... <laughs> And it was a a little too much black smoke coming out of the engine, but the train did not crash as a whole. Okay. And that's, you know, thanks to some saving moments like the cold open, all of Beck's great stuff. There's nothing I could say about Felicity as a host to defend this, this episode. So if, if it weren't for those couple of things that, uh, that worked, then this would be a train wreck. So as it stands, I give it a, a weak status. Yep. I agree with you. The last train wreck that I can remember on SNL was Jonah Hill's last appearance. That was an episode where end to end, I felt like it just, it misfired and there was just nothing you could hang your hat on just end to end. It was almost painful to watch. And this episode, while it had some serious lows, it wasn't painful for me for a few reasons. Like Felicity Jones. Yes. Sketch comedy is not her calling. And the writing in a lot of sketches was very, very shaky or easy at times. There wasn't any great, great moments, but I really liked the musical guest. I really thought the show was a solid try. Like I don't feel like anyone checked out or felt it was a lost cause and wasn't bringing as much as they could. So even the, the sketches that I think, you know, really fell apart, you know, the theater one with the old guy and, you know, a few other moments that really were kind of hard to watch. I don't feel like 
that's enough to really say that the show was a lost cause. I still enjoyed watching it for, <laughs> for as weak as it truly was. I still had fun with it. Yeah. Yep. That's fair. And I think that's a cast. Thanks to my guest, Steve Finn. You can connect with Steve on Facebook at Transparency CHMR. If you'd like to support the podcast, please consider using and bookmarking our Amazon and other affiliate links found at snlafterparty.fm. It costs you absolutely nothing to use our affiliate links when shopping online, but it really helps us in covering our costs and is greatly appreciated. We'll be back in one week when SNL returns with host Aziz Ansari and musical guest Big Sean. This has been episode number 12 of the Saturday Night Live After Party podcast. I'm John Murray. Good night and have a pleasant tomorrow. Thank you to Sturgill Simpson. wonderful and exquisite cast and crew at SNL. Justice Scalia's death has left a vacancy on the Supreme Court, and many are wondering about your timeline for a replacement. So I guess my question is, did you guys like all pee, or did you just like watch them guys, pee? <laughs> guys, no, no, I do not want to talk about the PP. I want to talk about what is really important, which is jobs, okay, because I am going to bring back a thick stream of jobs back in this country. <laughs> The biggest, strongest, steadiest stream you've ever seen. This country will be literally showered with jobs. Because I am a major whiz at jobs. And this will be a golden opportunity for me as president to make a big splash. Who's with me? I know you're in. How about you? You're in? You're in? You're in? You're in? You're in? Okay. <laughs>